0: Hi, I'm Andalisi. Welcome to episode 11 of Essential Conversations. Well, Mike Halloran got his start in radio at WDET in Detroit in 1979, hosting a show called Radios in Motion, taken from the title of an XTC song. He went on to play new wave and punk music to enthusiastic Detroiters, and then took his talents out West, landing a job at 91X in San Diego in 1983. During one of his trips back to the Motor City, we sat down and talked about pretty much everything. It is safe to say that you, my friend, were responsible for bringing what came to be known as new wave music to Detroit
1: radio. I would like to claim that, but (laughs) I, I must state that when I started at DET, there were programs that played what was considered underground rock, but it wasn't considered new wave because new wave hadn't really been coined yet. You know, the punk scene. Right. seventy-five, seventy-six. I started here in 77 as an engineer. I didn't start here as a host. I had to beg and scream and plead. I hosted once for Jerry Stormer. I took over his show at one point. I went out to Ann Arbor, interviewed XTC when they opened for the police at the Michigan Theater and brought that back. And the whole interview was basically my show. I just played a couple of songs at the beginning, played the interview, and then played a couple of songs. And that was like his whole hour, two hours or whatever it was that Jerry had back in those days. But... There were programs, but they featured a lot of super progressive rock. Mm -hmm. And then I came in with the concept of the minimalistic stuff that was happening at that time post-punk. So there's bands like Magazine, Fingerprints. I'm trying to remember some of the bands we used to Mm -hmm. play that I would really love to hear again. The early electronic stuff that came out. Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, Kraftwerk. Uh, We were playing that stuff at DET here before Mojo started playing it and before the, the Belleville Three guys heard it. We were playing it here originally because i was really lucky uh the first couple of years that i arrived at the station
0: and you came here with the intent of eventually being
1: on the air and I you didn't, just i didn't know all all i knew was i went to specs right all i wanted to do was learn how to run the equipment because i was convinced here's here's how the story goes you know john o'leary mm-hmm. i used to call him and demand that he play this is, this is gonna sound really <laughs> weird I would demand that he would play Genesis. This was before Peter Gabriel left the band. Okay. And Genesis were not a viable rock band for radio in Detroit back then. Even though Detroit had broken, Roxy Music, King Crimson, all those super progressive bands came out of, you know, the Detroit early WABX days when they were playing whatever the heck they wanted to. Right. So all that early prog rock stuff, they played on Detroit radio. And then all of a sudden there came this, you know, riff became super homogenized and it was all BS. So I would call O'Leary up. When I was coming back, I I was going to school in England from 70 to 76. So 70 to 76. So as I would call John up, I'd be like, play this new band. They're from England. They're really good. They're called Genesis. And at one point, it's hilarious, Zeppelin, Houses of the Holy had come out. And uh, I called one <laughs> station. I can't remember what it was. Because they all played the same things. And I called. And I still, my voice hadn't broken yet. So it was 73. And I was, hi. Had it <laughs> part, part of an English accent. Listen, you guys keep pronouncing that, uh, that song wrong. And the guy's like, oh, what are you talking about? And I go, you know that song? You're playing that song. You keep calling it Dire Maker. There's Zeppelin. It's on the new album. And the guy's like, well, it's called Dire Maker. I go, it's actually Jamaica. Dyer's Jamaica. It's a play on words of did you go? Did you take your wife on holiday? Jamaica? No, she went on her own volition. And the whole thing was is that these jocks. The guy gets on the air and he goes, uh, "Some girl just called me and said uh, I'm mispronouncing the name." So he says it's Jamaica, <laughs> and of course they never changed it. <laughs> Years later, if you go to the Wikipedia page right now, because yep. I was so upset. <laughs> <laughs> and I was called a girl. Now I don't care. Uh, I was so, so upset that uh, Robert Plant came in the studio years ago when I was working in the radio in San Diego. And I made him put it on tape, sent it to Wikipedia. So it's on Wikipedia now, how to pronounce that name. So that being said, I knew I wanted to get on the radio, but I didn't know where I could get on the radio. I leave Specs. And the, the normal thing was you go to Bad Axe, Michigan, you go to Sturgis, Michigan, you go to the middle of nowhere, and you put in a couple of years, then you try to get back to Rift, Wheels, right. uh, ABX, W4, CJOM. There was five rock stations at that point. Five. Detroit Rock City. And I thought, oh, I'll get back on one of these. And I was driving for a film company at the time. I was going to Specs Howard at night, driving for a film company, and we were, I was delivering film. I knew this area better than anybody. I mean, this whole area, I could, back of my hand, blindfolded, drive it backwards, upside down. I could do it in a a hot air balloon and, you know. Anyway, my point was I kept listening to D.E.T. because it was the only station that would play something that was better than Fleetwood Mac's Rumors. Judy Adams, first time I ever heard her play something super progressive by Frank Zappa, I was like, I don't know who this girl is, but I'm in love and I'm going to meet her. (laughs) I knew every DJ in Detroit radio, so I would then have to pull over and call her up. And she was, you know— I don't want to say she was, like, super nice because she had a job to do. She was running a live radio show. It wasn't, like, a playlisted show. And uh, eventually I just kind of thought, I'm going to go down and apply for a job there because I knew that they started at X amount of time in the morning, or this station started at X amount of time in the morning, and then they ran till 1 o'clock in the morning. So they, they probably needed engineers at least to run programs. So I came down and applied, met Calvin. Calvin Usury. Jim uh, Lawler, I think his name mm-hmm. was, who uh, was one of my favorite guys because he kept – Every time somebody would send him something and and his name was spelt wrong, he would clip it out of the envelope and he would stick it up on his wall. And then he had this thing shellacked on his wall. And it was the size of, I think, Kentucky. And it was all of the misspellings of his name. And you could sit there for an hour and read, Jim Baller, Jim Crawler, Jim Oller, Jim New Orleans. You know, it would be like, it was really funny. So they gave me the job. My first job, unpaid, was coming down here at about five in the morning on Sundays. And I ran uh, Music of the Black Church. And I can't remember the guy who was the, did the, all the classical music back then, but I ran three or four programs in a row, the opera show and a bunch of other things. Stayed here till about noon and then uh, drove back to uh, my parents' place. They were living in, in uh, Southfield at that point. Met Carolyn Striho, because Carolyn was working in the office and I kept bugging her and I'm going like, we got to get this music on the radio because we were both playing in bands. I was mm-hmm. playing in the plugs. She was playing in the cubes. And uh, we used to bug and I can't remember who it was. Karen, I can't remember her last name, C-A-R-Y-N, I'm just- I'm, K- the, Well, Karen Mathis. It's probably but, Karen Mathis or somebody else basically finally gave me the nod to do, and it started at one o'clock in the morning, like Wednesday night, Thursday mornings, and then they bounced us around. I actually filled in once. There was a, pro, it was a syndicated show that was on from one to three on Fridays. I don't remember what it was. And Judy goes, why don't you do one fundraiser? <laughs> I, think her, I think her whole point was, we'll get rid of this guy forever. Because he's going to come in and do a fundraiser, which you know is the hardest thing on the planet to do. It is. So I come in on the Friday, and I just started playing music and basically looked like it was— I said, look, it's extortion time. You want to hear this stuff on the radio in Detroit? You have to call and pledge right now. The two-hour show netted ten grand. This is in the 70s. $10,000. $10,000. And then it was about <laughs> four weeks later, they said, okay, you can have a time slot. It was very political back in those days. You Know, I, I have no idea what it's like now. It was very political, so I, I remember getting the phone call from somebody saying, You're gonna be on the air, we're gonna put you on like one o'clock to three o'clock in the morning, Wednesday night, Thursday morning, whatever the time was. And uh, I remember going to the program guide because they used to send out the mailer, mm-hmm. the program guide, this super long thing that was you know about an inch wide and 15 inches long. It was insane to read, but it was artsy as all hell. Oh, yes, and I thought. Who am I? Who am I replacing? I know I'm, no, I'm going to upset somebody. I'm going to go in there to do my shift, and there's going to be a note, Halloran, get lost. You know, you've taken my show. And I look, and the the broadcast day ended at one o'clock, and they just basically slapped Radios in Motion. Originally entitled, by the way, Judy Adams said, "Why don't you use the name Rest Aria?" That was a resident song. Right. Residents were cool, underground. Why don't you use this name? I'm like, uh, I, I, I kind of like Radios in Motion. Because the song mentions Milwaukee, where I was born, Mm -hmm. and talks about the radio waves and the kids. I mean, that was the main thing. The kids wanted to hear something different than what the adults wanted to hear. So uh, we changed the name Radio's Emotion. Carolyn and I basically uh, came in and hosted it at first, uh, and it was super late at night, and eventually she just kind of, you know, showing up was very difficult. She had a real job. Right. So did I, but, you know, I didn't care. Caffeine worked for me. (laughs) So that's the thing. So, so. To answer your question, no, there were programs that played stuff, but I was the one who just encapsulated it into a two-hour show then and then it went to – and that was on – at one point I was on two nights a week and then I went back to Friday afternoons and then just keep, kept bouncing around. But I think it was because I raised ten grand that they freaked out like, uh-oh, maybe this is viable.
0: They underestimated the appetite for this kind of music.
1: Yeah. Or maybe they didn't understand I, it. I don't at think all. any I, I'll be honest with you. I don't think anybody understood it. But I could tell you that the 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 issue that was really upsetting with me was Detroit has birthed a lot of music scenes. Still to this day. I mean, I was listening on the, on on the, on the way in talking about and I hate using the term EDM cuz it just makes no sense to me. But the the underground resistance type stuff, the underground dance music that was coming out of Detroit that was started here It's bizarre to me because I think of Detroit and I think of there's an old Dwight Yoakam song called Read and Write and Route 23 about how everybody would come up from the hollers. And it brought the blues guys up. It brought the country guys up. It brought the bluegrass guys. And they all got to Detroit. And this amalgamation of weirdness happened. And so Detroit became like this hotbed of experimentation. The jazz side of things, all the stuff that was happening back in the 60s and the 70s, it was just electric and it was on fire. And it didn't stop. So when the Mutants and Cold Cock and all these bands were doing their thing, it was pretty unbelievably amazing. But there was no representation on the radio. So I basically would take on that side. Sin aside, Cubes, obviously. I never played the plugs on the radio because it would just seemed p- pointless, you know. <laughs> I wrote this song, everybody. <laughs> so... All the bands pre-Figures on the Beach, pre-electronic stuff, and then the electronic stuff started creeping in at the same time. Detroit has got this amazing—and I don't know what it is. It's always been about Center for Creative Studies, which I guess is now called something different. College for Creative Studies. Okay. Right. It was College for Creative Studies. I saw it on the back of the bus on the way over here. I thought, wait, they changed the name? They did. I had no idea. But the amount of kids that came out of that school right. that influenced rock and roll in a, in a pretty amazing way, and the kids from the suburbs, the guys from Belleville, all of this stuff— has added up to one thing to me, that this city's always been unstoppable about taking people's music, whether it was the blues, jazz, or whatever it is, adding something that nobody ever thought of. So when the MC5 and the Stooges did their thing, nobody saw punk punk coming out of that. Nobody said, oh, this is the beginning of punk rock, because all they were doing was doing their best impersonation of how weird and out they could get with what jazz they were influenced by at that time. And then it just blew up to the point where there are bands today that I go see in clubs. You would swear that all they'd ever listened to was the MC5.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, because they're more influential than ever before. When When you were playing music that was made outside of Detroit, this is going to sound like a very pedestrian question, but given the paradigm of the time, where did you get all of the music? Because now people have access to music all over the place. But then finding that music to create a show like you were doing that was music made outside of Detroit, how did you get it?
1: Two really easy things to explain. Number one, when I was running Music of the Black Church, when I was running the taped programs, Master Control at DET was 10 steps away from the library, which was very well kept up and had every new album that was coming out from every major label release. So inside the library was every Talking Heads record, every other underground record that you want to get a hold of, But nobody in Detroit was playing these things, including DET. So I would go through the library. There was a a new section every week, so I'd go through, I'd drop the needle on it, and I would run back and forth, make sure that the programs were on the air, and I would ingest as much stuff as possible, take copious notes. I had a yellow pad of stuff because I figured if I get on the air, I better know what I'm going to play. So this is like two years of me just ingesting the library. I had worked at Stanford's radio station. When I, when I left DET at one point, I went to Stanford's radio station, got to do a, a, like a mini version of Radios Emotion. And at that point, I was like, I jocked the turntables. I knew what I was doing. So when I came back, I left for probably about eight months and came back. And Calvin said, you want a full-time job? You can come down here and work for like three bucks an hour or whatever it was. I still had to go work for a different company. But they finally gave me my show. So I had already ingested that stuff. My sister, Kathy, worked for Virgin Records in London.
0: Oh, you had a...
1: She started sending me stuff. That's amazing. She worked uh, for Virgin and another company that had Caroline Records, which is um, what kind See. of offshoot of Virgin, and Din Disc, which was part of the whole early electronic stuff. Right. She would send me records over all the time. Uh, I would take regular trips to England. When I got time off, I could go to England and, and grab new stuff. But the most important factor was the guys at off the record here in Detroit. They had, I think they had two locations at one point. Mm-hmm. They realized their potential of, they basically bought a bunch of imports and they had no idea what they sounded like. So I would go in and I would grab anything and everything I wanted to come down to the station a couple hours in advance. And I would just needle through these records. I didn't know if there was bad words in them. I had no idea. It was like the whole John Peel approach, who was my big influence growing up in England. And I just would needle through the records and then Go, all right, I'm going to play this one, this one, this one, this one. And then paying attention to what was going on with the New Musical Express, whatever it was, it was always three weeks late arriving here. So the program turned into basically a potpourri of whatever happened, that whatever I could grab from off the record. Anything that didn't work, I would take back to them. And people would go into off the record the next day, just buy every copy that they ever had. So all I had to do was sell five copies to whoever in Detroit was listening at that time. So the trivial thing was it was a combination of the D.E.T. library was really ex- extensive at that point. My sister sending me albums. Uh, eventually she hooked up with other record labels and they were just sending me stuff. They knew that the Airplay was going to s- save them from you know being destitute. And, um, and the guys were off the record. And that was what it all came down to. And the guys were off the record probably more so than anybody because once they started buying stuff from whatever it was, every other independent ra- label, they would just go, oh, give me a copy for the radio station. And some of these people go like, what radio station? <laughs> and, uh, and they would just go, oh, there's a station town. This, uh, this guy's playing your stuff. So, uh, and so they would just give him a promo copy. And you got to remember, in those days, I didn't know what record labels did. All I knew was that they just had product. There were, I didn't know there was label people that were just to call me up and say, have you checked this thing out? Which leads to the story about the first time you 2 came to Detroit. I didn't know there was a record label involved. I just showed up at Harpo's. I drove most of them, not, not Bono, but I drove most of them back to their hotel at nine mile and 75. They, there was a holiday in there. Yep. And, and this is it's weird. This is all pre-PDAs. This is all pre-cell phones. This is all pre-email. I told them who I was, what my name was, and said, next time you come through. And this, I'm telling this to the band. I'm not, not a road manager, not a manager. You guys got to come by my radio show. And I get a phone call. I don't know how. A week before they came back to play the Royal Oak Music Theater, uh, they're going to come and do your show. I'm like, okay, great, because they're just a band from Ireland. They're not you two yet. And they come by the station. They hang out the whole of Radio's in Motion. Hang out in the studio. We played a bunch. Took a bunch of phone calls. I would hate to hear the interview now because I'm sure it was horrible. (laughs) I hope nobody has a tape of it. And then they played the show the next day at the Royal Oak Music Theater. But they, you know, they sold out Harpo's the first time through. Sold out the Royal Oak Music Theater a couple of months in advance. And then from there on, it was just. Massive shows. Absolutely, you know. They were went, you surprised they were,
0: at how um, incredibly famous they became?
1: Honestly, no. And, and it's, it's funny because when you meet guys like Robert Plant, you understand that the kindness of the rock stars that become huge is the reason that they become huge. The ones who are the jerks tend to uh, put up too many roadblocks and then people just get tired of the shenanigans and, and they disappear. Sublime, who's one of the biggest bands probably in the country today, played tons and tons on most alternative stations across the country. They upset every single program director in the country back then because the singer was basically a complete jerk. And he'd bring his dog, his dog would bite people, and it was horrible. And so when they went in to record their first real album, because the first album was done in a college radio station in, in Long Beach, I think it was, or UC Irvine or something, they came back after they had done this album in Texas, went on a little tour, and the guy died of a heroin overdose. And after he died, he was no longer in his own way of stopping that band from becoming huge. So the band actually took off because he was not there to desecrate the whole situation every time he came into a a radio studio. And it's weird. So everybody I've met since then, the Robert Plants of the world, the Robert Fripps of the world, Bono, and all these guys, they they would come. I mean, could you imagine U2 swinging by DET?
0: Uh, Not so much.
1: Taking a day off. They were playing. (laughs) They played like Nashville. They flew up did the Radios emotion show, played the show the next night, and I think they went to Cleveland afterwards. It's on the the gigography thing, which Mm -hmm. is— I
0: mean, what I find so amazing about it is they didn't have your email address and your cell phone number, and so they had to remember that they said to you, we'll come back, and then— I probably
1: gave them my parents' home phone number. (laughs) When everything was 313, and they'd had it since the 50s, and I probably gave it to them. Because I remember at one point, they were playing Masonic, and I was off DET at one point. This is probably 80 I'm trying to remember. It was before I came back, I think. They were playing Masonic, and I had called the hotel, because everybody knows where bands were staying, and left my information for Adam, the bass player. The phone rings, and my mother answers the phone and goes, Adam's on the phone you know, for you. And I look at her, and I was just 20 minutes before in an argument with an, another Adam friend of mine who I wasn't getting along with, and I thought, why is he calling me back? I just, you know, got mad at him. So I pick up and go, what do you want? <laughs> and then Adam, you too, Adam, says, Mike? And I'm like, yes, it's Adam. And I'm like, Adam? And he goes, you know, Adam from you too. And I'm like, oh, sorry, dude. I was uh, just on the phone with another Adam. I know this is going to sound really weird, but... Uh, Sorry about that. And he goes, do you want to come to the show? And I'm like, I'd love to. And he goes, I'll put you on the list. And I'm thinking, <laughs> I I just was a complete jerk to him. I didn't know. But here's the thing. When, when do rock stars call you back? They don't.
0: Coming up next, Mike Halloran talks about Detroit's underground resistance, the electrifying mojo, and discovering the violent femmes. I'm Ann DeLisi. I'm Rob Reinhart. And we're about to bring back the perfect opportunity to honor your favorite pet and support WDET.
1: During our spring fundraiser, Ann and I will combine our shows so you can honor your dog. Or your cat. Or your dog. And WDET with a gift of support.
0: We're looking forward to hearing about your pets, no matter what kind of cat that is.
1: Cats and dogs and any other pet you may have will be part of our fundraiser.
0: And if you can't wait till the weekend, make your gift now at WDET.org slash give. Or call 800-959-9333. Hi, I'm Andalisi with the conclusion of my conversation with Mike Halloran. So let's get back to your personal history a little bit here. So you were at WDET from what years to what years,
1: years that were all strung together, the block of time first. Well there was I left going to school in England in 76, came back around. Easter time I left school early because I was not getting along with the administration you don't say uh, I came back I already got my O levels I started lower sixth over there I was going to go for my A levels and I just was unhappy I was playing in a band I was just you know my, my mother said why don't you just come back and work for a year and I said okay I'll, I'll come back and work for you then I, go. I was going to go to Stratford Tech to study acting that was my goal I'd actually fall in love with a girl at Stratford Tech but I didn't want to tell that to my mother I think she figured it out so I come back, and so it's the summer of 76, and my neighbor down the street from me is this guy called Joey Niederlander. And Joey ran what was called Pine Knob at that point. Mm-hmm. He, he owned it, ran it, or whatever it is. Now my dad says, you know, uh, Mike wants to get in the music business. Uh, you know, maybe he can work for you, Joey. And so Joey goes, I'll hire him as a ranger, which was the s- security guard. So he basically, my first quote-unquote real job was working for my neighbor Joey Niederlander. I was basically a security guard at Knob during that summer. Of 76. During that summer of me working at Pine Knob, I run into this guy called Jeff Shoemaker and his brother, Kenny, who recognized me because I went to camp with them at Camp DeSales out in in Brooklyn, Michigan, back in the early 70s the late 60s. We all went to camp together and they come up and they and his brother, Jeff, comes up to me. Kenny was in my cabin and I'm still friends with Kenny today. And Jeff comes up and goes, uh, are you my Alleran? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, my brother said uh, you went to camp with him. And I look over, and it's him. And I go, oh, very nice. Nice to see you guys. And then he goes, I'm in a band. You want to join my band? And I'm like, yeah, I'll join your band. You play bass? And I go, yeah, play bass. And he goes, great, you're in the plugs. That's how easy it was. So it was like 76. I'm in the plugs. I don't remember the first time I went to his house to play a gig. But you know who I replaced, by the way? Mm-mm. I replaced this guy called Doug Hutchison. You know him? <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you know who he is, I've really? heard him.
0: Oh, yeah, I've heard his name.
1: He's uh, sure. he's the guy that uh, was uh, it, it lived in Detroit for a long time, got arrested, and then his mother did not want him to uh, stay in Detroit and face the trial, so he moved to um, Minneapolis and became an actor, and he was in the Green Mile, <laughs> one of the best actors on the planet. He's also the guy that married the 15-year-old girl. There it is. So he was in the band for like five minutes, and uh, I don't think they ever played a gig. But anyway, I joined the Plugs. Then went to Specs Howard at the beginning of 77, and that's when I started hounding somebody here, got the job, so it was like 77. So I'm playing in the band, working here, but I worked here from 77 until probably for about nine months as a board op. And when I didn't get my own show, I left and moved to California for a short time. Lived in San Francisco, worked at Stanford's radio station, and came back about eight months later that's when Calvin said, why don't you, uh, you know, work for 350 an hour and do regular board hopping. But I went to work for a film company, and then my love of the stuff just got even more. I was just driving all the time, driving everywhere in Detroit. I could, you know.
0: You were doing radios in motion from 77?
1: No, 77 was board hopping. 78, I left, came back in 79. Uh, that's when Bookie started getting mm-hmm. full full strength. And at that point, I was like... You know, the drinking age was 18, so I was already in bars doing that kind of thing. Got the show rolling. It's funny because Caroline posted some, uh, um, Carolyn Strieho posted a thing about, it started in 80, 429, I think was the date. There was a couple of percolations of it that happened prior to that before it got its official launch.
0: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: me interviewing XDC and all that stuff. So I'd left once, and then I left again in 81, to go back out to California with Rhythm Core because at that point plugs dissolved, Rhythm Core formed out of the ashes of the plugs. I managed them, and we took off and went to LA, played a bunch of dates out there. I thought we'll get signed in a minute. Didn't happen. Came back, and when I came back, I started at, at DET again. And the weird thing was, I started back on DET because Electrified Mojo, who I'd known at that point because he was doing his thing, he was playing. He's his, one of
0: the few people that's actually seen him really to this day. You, he would, could run into people on the street they wouldn't know it's him. It's funny you say to that this because day, he's
1: always been, and I don't want to say transparent, but he's always been really super open. And I haven't seen him for, for years. I haven't. But well, I'll, I'll tell you a good story about him in a minute. Remind me about the, the Mojo story. But Mojo and I used to meet. I'd get off the air at whatever and I'd meet him down at one of the Coney Islands because mm-hmm. he'd get off the air at GPR and then he went to the JLB thing because he left GPR and I'd left DET. And I met him down at the Coney Island when he was on JLB. And he said to me, because I, I had this thing. LBS had started that time because LBS started in the summer of '83, but I didn't have a job there yet. They still had a bunch of the old holdover jocks from the the soul days, if you will. And I was bugging the guy who ran the place about working there because they started playing some of the alternative stuff, mainly the dancey stuff. New and, New Order's "Blue Monday" was their biggest song in '83,
0: and you would be a logical choice for them to employ to validate this format.
1: Yes and no. Yes, because everybody in Detroit knew what was going on. No, because they were a company out of New York. Percy Sutton, the guy that owned LBS, owned the station BLS in New York, which was the legendary soul slash funk station. I mean, super, super legendary. I mean, the stuff that they did in New York. But when he bought the station in Detroit, he just thought, I'll buy a station in Motown. He didn't know that the signal was way out in Mount Clemens. So he didn't hit the inner city. He never got the audience that he expected. So when they started bleeding in like New Order and stuff and and people started freaking out like, oh my God, They're playing New Order on on, on LBS. Then I was the logical choice. But the guy that ran the station, Captain Roberts, was a transplant from New York that just basically moved out to the suburbs of Detroit. Didn't know anything about the city. Didn't know anything about alternative music. And and basically I was just this weirdo that had a show. Really, seriously, I was a weirdo that had a show that played the pistols. (laughs) And you were were playing it here. I was playing it here uh, on DT. But. He's like, you got to remember the Clash at that point, it was Rock the Casbah that they were playing at LBS. And I was still playing, you know, White Riot and all the really, mm-hmm. uh, you know, underground hardcore stuff. So when they finally said, OK, we'll hire you, which is uh, January of 84, I had just got back to, to DET because Mojo said to me, he goes, because I said, why do not they hire me at, at, at LBS? And he goes, this is what I love about this man. He looks at me and he goes, you can't kick anybody in the b- when you're on your knees. And I stopped and I thought to myself, I will never forget that he's basically said, stand up, take the job at DET, even though it was basically back to a two hour show a week at some weird time slot that I didn't really want to do because I thought that it should have been bigger and better. I was like, why? And he just said, look, you're on your knees, stand up, and then you can kick people in the butt again. So I took the job. So I, I think I was back by the summer of 83. Uh, my girlfriend and I at the time, we're going to open up a sushi bar. Here's how funny that is. We we're going to open a su- sushi bar in Royal Oak. I know. Before anybody knew what sushi was. It's like Mary and I were like, we're going to open up a sushi bar.
0: <laughs> You're a little
1: ahead of your time there, my yeah, friend. Yeah, it's just, it's just weird. And now Royal Oak, I just went through there yesterday. It's hopping in. Oh, yeah. It is unbelievable. So Mojo said, stand up, tick people in the b. And I said, OK. I came back, and I think I did probably two, two and a half months worth of shows. So it was like, you know, September, October, November. And then in December, Captain Robert said, you'll start January 1st.
0: Well, that was the only time I met you. And I was an intern, I think. I was filing classical albums at the time before I took over the music library. How
1: did they let
0: a 10-year-old
1: in this building? See, you
0: say all the right things. That's why I'm talking to you. And I remember we had a big meeting in that giant live studio where they used to do the Lone Ranger. Right. And I was completely starstruck because I knew you were coming to this meeting and I knew who you were and all the great things that you had done. And I thought it was so exciting that you were going to be there. And then I never saw you again. and such, you ended Such up- <laughs> a huge disappointment I've
1: turned out to be in your life.
0: And then you uh, took off and went to LBS, which made complete sense. I mean, you were the person who had spearheaded so much of that music and getting it on the radio in the first place. And so how long, and it was, there was a real excitement about the launch of that station and that that music was, was going to be played uh, that station was. that station
1: was going for like a year or so before I got there it just didn't have it didn't have the cohesiveness it's not because, the focus really And the weird thing about it was it was not through any fault of theirs but they you know the music director was from New York and you know I'm, I'm always a big local advocate so I basically took armfuls of records that I collected over the years one of my favorite records that I took that I started playing here on D.E.T. two of them One was this record by the Violent Femmes that that came out in, in, I think, the end of 82, beginning of 83. Mm -hmm. I had that copy with me. So in January of of 84, I started playing this band called Violent Femmes. I'd heard about them because Mary, my girlfriend at the time, was living in L.A. and she heard it on KXLU, which is the the underground station at Loyola Marymount's uh, radio station in L.A. And she called me up one day and she's like, have you ever heard of Violent Femmes? And I'm thinking it's a trick question. Like, that's a trick question. What do I answer? I go, I don't know. What is it? And she goes, Come on, you've heard of these people. And I'm like, no. She says, There's a song called Blistering Sun. And I go, Don't know about it. She goes, It's an album. Go find it. So I go down to DET, find this thing, pull it out, play the track on the radio on DET for the first time. This is amazing. It's like punk rock acoustic music. Mm-hmm. And then I took add it up, did an edit of added up because there's a big F bomb in the middle of it or Right. whatever it is. We just ran with it. So when I went to LBS, we, I'd already warmed it up at DET, and I brought another wet record with me by this band called Beastie Boys. They had a 12-inch a out called Cookie Puss, yes. which was the weirdest record on the planet. I took the copy from DET, ironically enough, because there really was two or three of them here at the time. I Rat, know I, Rat Cage Records had s- I, sent it to us. I Go
0: remember ahead. there was a couple copies on the shelf because I had seen it yeah. after you left, yeah.
1: And I took one copy because it just it had like – Cookie Puss on one side, and then a dub version on the other side. And I took it with me, and I said to Captain Roberts, "I'm going to pound the crap out of these two records." It's called Cookie Puss and Blister in the Sun. And he's like, "Okay." Gives me the little salute thing, and I go in there. And the trippy part was, I knew how influential the station was going to become because years later, I find out the facts of how it worked. But I remember watching because they had the, they'd always print the the uh, in the Detroit News or the Free Press back in those days. They would print the charting records. Mm-hmm. The Violent Femmes was outselling, this is no lie, it was outselling Seven and the Ragged Tiger and Purple Rain by Prince on the strength in of Detroit. just, on just the, the, the LBS airplay. Because it was just me from Seven a Midnight playing this stuff. And the whole time I kept going, why isn't anybody else playing this? Why?" And so the record, what I find out years later, I, I, I left here, went to San Diego. We played it in San Diego like it was brand new. I, keep, I got to San Diego in 86. So at that point it's almost five years old and it starts charting in San Diego. Years later, I meet this, this woman called uh, Anna Statman, who signed the band. And she was waiting for them to finish the, uh, the album. So she just released the demo tapes. So the first album that you know from the Violent Femmes is just their demo tapes recorded by their manager, Mark Van Hecke, at a studio someplace in Milwaukee. And they put that out, and, it's, and it went on to sell a million records. How do I know this? She calls me up one day. She goes, i got something to send you. And I go, like, what is it? she goes, we finally hit a million with the Violent Femmes. And this is in the mid-'90s. Like 97, 98 all those or so. And I'm oh thinking, really? And she, and she then tells me the story. And this is how weird the music business was in those days. They slash records were so small at that point, they would printed up 10,000 copies of that album and they sent them to all corners of America. So every time Harmony House or Off the Record or one of these places sold a copy, they would have to call someplace else like Portland, Oregon, and San Francisco send the three copies you have back to us. And they would send them back to Slash and then they'd send them to Detroit. So they were recalling all 10,000 copies to their office in LA and then sending them to Detroit. Consequently, when they sold out all 10,000, they were like, now what do we do? So they went for the second pressing because they never thought this record was going to sell anything. And it just kept going and going and going and going. So when I moved to San Diego, it happened again in San Diego. And, and she didn't know who I was. She just tried to figure it out like, why is it selling here? And then I went to LA. I worked at K-Rock for a short time in 88. Then it got thrown in that soundtrack for g- Gross Point Blank. Yep, and the thing just just basically it was like a, a wheel wheelbarrow that was just like slowly going down <laughs> the hill. That all of a sudden turned into this monster, to the point where it sold a, a million records. She goes, I finally figured out what it was, and I go, what? She goes, you just kept bringing the same copy with you everywhere you went because I took the copy from LBS with me, San Diego, and you know at this point that's one of that and Legend are like Catcher in the Rye. They're albums that virtually everybody on the planet has, and if you don't, you're not a real human being. On vinyl, by the way. <laughs> Got to have it on vinyl. So that, that was the thing. So I left E.T. in 83. That's when, obviously, I met you for the first time. Mm-hmm. At 10 years old, you were... It was The weird part was I remember you having to climb those huge ladders to put the, the, the <laughs> A's on the top, because those libraries were not very OSHA-friendly back in those days,
0: were they, at? No, not quite so much. So you go to LBS... And you have your tenure there. And I remember when they changed the format. They changed the format
1: twice. They, but it
0: didn't take very long. Like how long did they leave eight, it? N-
1: eight nine months. They basically came in and uh, Janie Washington. It was just it was a sideways deal. But basically, all the alternative stuff became very huge. And they, I think, they thought it was getting out of control because it was the weird punk rock kids at night that were basically you know, the influence that LBS had back in those days. So when they said, we're flipping the format, I said to Jane, I said, when? And she goes, we're flipping it next week. And I said, can you just do me a favor? Just can I tell the audience it's flipping? Because I think you need to know how many people support it. Mm -hmm. Because they were having a hard time selling it. So I said, if I can get people to show up at the radio station, can the salespeople take pictures of the people who show up at the radio station? And then you can go to the advertisers and say, this is, is who listens. These are the people, because you got to remember, at that time, Psychedelic Furs sold out Meadowbrook. All these pretenders were selling out. Pine Knob. All the bands were doing incredibly well. The Clash played Motor City Roller Rink, I think. Uh, Then they came back and played the Grand Circus Theater. They they played all of these, you know, amazing plays. The bands were huge. They were selling tons and tons and tons of records, but the salespeople at LBS could not get it together to go out there and attract the advertisers, which is what radio is based upon that was my lesson after leaving DET, that I couldn't just go on the air and raise ten grand in two hours by begging people to send money. So Janie goes, okay, fine, just do it. So we went on the air, and I don't think she expected it, but people basically camped out in front of the radio station. The news truck showed up. And so they said uh, – Janie goes, okay, you guys got a reprieve. And uh, I thought, great. We probably got like maybe another six months or so, and then we got to do it again. What nobody <laughs> knows is the guy who was the program director – was also my roommate. He never bought it. He never got an apartment in Detroit. His name was Sergio. He used to live in New York. He would come and crash at my apartment. I had an apartment downtown, in the um, right in the corner of uh, uh, Grand River and um, Washington. I had an apartment down there with my my buddy Lem, who helped launch. Um, CIMX, mix. Do you remember yep. Lem Payne?
0: I remember Lem Payne because I was at the river across the hall, right. and Lem was selling both stations Yeah, Lem, Lem point.
1: Lem was my room. He, was, he originally sold, crazy. Uh, he sold Cadillacs at uh, Seymour Cadillac, and he said he wanted a roommate. I wasn't making enough money to afford to live in that place. So he goes, I'll pay the most of the rent. Just, you know, get me into shows. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> I'll get you into shows. <laughs> so— Sergio would come in, and uh, Sergio Dean would come in, and he would live in the upstairs uh, living room, and both of us had bedrooms downstairs. He calls me up one day from the station at, like, 2 in the afternoon. He goes, uh, I got good news, and I got bad news. I go, what's the good news? He goes, I'll be home early for dinner. I go, what's the bad news? He goes, you're fired. And I'm like, what? You're firing me? And he's like, yeah, we're going to flip formats anyway. And I was like, this is great. So they didn't let us say goodbye the second time, Flip the format, and uh, I sat there for probably, oh, I don't know, two, three months or so until uh, Lee Arnold, who uh, mm-hmm. at that point was working at Wheels, and Doug Podell basically said, all right, we'll give you the overnight shift at, at Wheels. I think I was unemployed for about four or five months, I think. And that's when I kind of realized how much radio was just not what I expected because I was playing Don Henley and YNT and these bands. But they let me bring Radio's Emotion back to do Sunday nights on Wheels, which was Huge because the listenership of Wheels was phenomenal at that point, right? I don't know if you got, know it stood for "We Love Led Zeppelin," and you
0: <laughs> and you got to play whatever you wanted. Did they uh, let you uh, when you when you when you did, when you on did the Sunday? Show. Yeah, on the Sunday when show, you did and Sunday. That's,
1: and then that leads to the fact that the Beastie Boys came by LBS when they played Todd's. Mm-hmm. I believe they played Todd's and they played St. Andrews. I'm trying to remember which one it was. Kenny Wagner booked the show, flew them in, paid him five hundred bucks. Uh, and then they came back again when I was at Wheels opening for Madonna, and they came by the station. That's uh, just—and
0: I remember hearing the Beastie Boys opening for Madonna,
1: and I thought, this is interesting. Well, but think about it this way. Here's, here's your connection again. Madonna's brothers and sisters still lived here. Mm-hmm. The Beasties were freaking massive in Detroit. And she always had her connections here. So they're a New York band and she'd obviously seen them on the scene there and thought, well, I'll just bring these guys because they're going to be much better than any whatever band. And the Beasties upset every single teenage girl on the planet because they came out there grabbing their crotches before anybody was grabbing crotches. And – freaked out every 12, 13-year-old little girl. Actually, probably didn't freak out the girls, probably freaked out the girls' mothers because, because they were like, what is going on here? And they came by on that tour. They came by LBS, hung out. And then I left LBS, I don't know, year, year and a half into it. And then that's when I worked for Jim Harper for a very short time at DTX. So it was back on the old ABX frequency.
0: When they launched DTX, was the goal to capitalize on what now we knew as new wave music? And
1: was that the goal at the time? I remember hearing some stuff. I don't know. It was, see, the thing is, like, to me, the whole thing about new wave was people said, oh, Elvis Costello, new wave, split ends, new wave, Mr. 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 New Wave. And my point was that Elvis Costello was always like the Dylan of our generation, mm-hmm. split ends were like, Dylan-esque, but wore weirder costumes. And the bands we liked to play back in those days, Hoodoo Gurus and stuff, we knew what alternative really was. We knew what was really good. And then we saw these other bands that had skinny ties on. It was like the second coming of The Knack. So any band that had the haircut and whatever it was, they were starting to play on MTV at that time. We were like, no, 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 no. That's, that's not real. We love mm-hmm. Uh We loved New Order. We loved Echo and the Bunnymen, Psychedelic Furs. Public Image Limited, all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff, and then the bands that everybody, Cindy Wapa, what else did LBS play? That was um, there was a bunch of those bands that basically were on the cusp, but they weren't Talk Talk. Mm-hmm. They weren't the the good bands of, of that era. So in the in that early eighties thing, it was like it started shying away from the punk stuff. The punk attitude was there. I was talking to OMD a couple of years ago, or Custom Moves in the Dark. Their attitude was they can do anything because that's with the punk rock you know ethos behind it. But it was electronic music. So when they're up there, and this is all pre-midi, pre-sequencer. So they were going to get the sound to do what it was supposed to do, as opposed right. to now they just hit a button and goes and it's just a machine making the... They actually had to do they it. They actually had to do it with their fingers. You know, like, um, <laughs> yeah. Gosh, I, know a I, know I know it's radio, but you know, they'd have to go bang on these keyboards in whatever to keep up with the drum machine. That's- so anyway, that being said, we knew there was a difference. So when, when DTX started, they were playing a lot of those bands that we thought were bunk. Mm-hmm. But I got in there. My buddy uh, Mark Sovel, who now goes by the name of Shovel. Oh, nice. Mark and I started at the same time. Mark is now, by the way, I don't know if you know this. He runs. He's uh, Steve Jones is a producer from mm. the Sex Pistols he has his own radio show in uh, in uh, L. A. on a station oh, there. That's and pretty Mark, cool. Mark hangs with him like every single day. <laughs> it's pretty great. So uh, he and I were working there, and things went south after. I don't even know eight months or so.
0: Were you getting disheartened by then? I mean, you had bounced around you know, trying to do this for so long. I mean, I know you were young and you're maybe more resilient when you're young, but you had been just sort of carrying the torch for this music in a very significant way and being bound and not being able to do it for long enough. I mean, the, the longevity was so you know, cut short. You, a few months here, you're fired. No, you're not. And then a couple more months here. And then this, and then Mojo helps you get the chutzpah to go do what you had to do. I mean,
1: I got disheartened at certain times. I remember, I remember at one point I had to go to the, the doctor. I had the, it felt like there was a, a knife in the back of my head. And he goes, this is a, a like, a, this is, you're just basically stressed out. You need to, he gave me this thing called Fioranol. I don't remember anything after that. All I remember was, <laughs> Um, and I think it was right around the time before, I think it was just before, it was just before I went to wheels. I'd left LBS and I was just, I went in and, and like probably had a nervous breakdown. I, the only way I could describe is had a nervous breakdown went down and he basically says, just take this. And I remember just being knocked out for a couple of days because it was really, you know, it's funny cause I never talked about this. It, it was really annoying because I just wanted to like take all these general managers and go, do you not see what's happening? That the band U2 that got its first airplay on 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 DET came by the studio is now playing Joe Lewis or they're playing you know cuz this is they'd already made it but they couldn't see that there was other bands like that that would come along mm-hmm. but um Mojo was playing Prince like and nobody else was playing him I was playing him uh I played the Dirty Mind album on Mojo was playing the earlier two albums with uh what was the track on there that Chucka uh, Gon Chugga Gon a feel for you that mm-hmm. that one Mojo was already playing that stuff. So when Dirty Mind came out, uh, Mojo did edits on him. He played right. those songs. I started playing them on, on D.E.T. He played, I think it was the, it was right off West Grand Boulevard. So like the t- uh, 20 Grand Club or right. Latin Quarter. He played like the Latin the Quarter. Latin Quarter. Uh, mm-hmm. Prince played the Latin Quarter on one of his first tours. And he would go in and he would hang out with Mojo. So years and years and years and years later. We launched a station in L.A. called indie one oh three one And Prince was listening to the station, called the general manager up and said, his his GM, like the guy ran his, his deal and said, uh, the girl actually, said, get a hold of that station. They remind me of this guy I used to listen to in Detroit called the Electrifying Mojo and tell them I want to give them my new record. So my friend Max, who hired me at, at 91X back in 86, gets a phone call from this woman, says she works for the... For him in LA, but she also works with Prince and Prince wants him to come by and have dinner. And, and Max is like, yeah, right. No, seriously, he wants you to come by and have dinner. So Max takes Shovel, Mark Sovel, you know, ex-Detroiter, um, and they trundle over to uh, to Prince's house. Prince has made them this dinner or somebody's made them this dinner and they're waiting for Prince to show up and the guy who's in charge of the city goes, go ahead and eat and Prince will be down in a minute. So Max said he finishes his meal, he puts his fork and knife down, and like the second it goes clunk on the plate, Prince walks in, like on cue, and goes, thank you for coming. I want to play you some tracks of my new album. And, and Max kept saying, holy beep, s," yes, right? He keeps saying, holy beep, and Prince looks at him and goes, we don't swear in this house. And Max goes, I'm so sorry. He goes, and by the way, how do those two words ever come together? Holy and beep. And Max is freaking out because we'd all played at that point a ton of Prince. On the radio, because this is like five years ago, five, six years ago. And so they go into the other room. Prince plays him this album that barely came out after that. He'd covered Crimson and Clover, this amazing version of Crimson Clover, and ga- gives him the files. And I call Max up and go, send them to me. We started playing them at um, the station I was at at that point. But it was really trippy. But he sits there and he says to to Max and, and Mark Sov, he goes... You know what the station reminds me of? I used to listen to this guy in Detroit, and I used to go by his station all the time, Electrifying Mojo. He was one of the most amazing. And Mark goes, I know that guy. And Prince goes, do you know how to get a hold of him? <laughs> and Mark <laughs> is like, I-, I can make some phone calls because he's going to call me and go, can you get a hold of Charles? Because Charles, obviously at this point, nobody right. knows where he's gone. He's disappeared off the off the planet. So." Mark sends me this text. Prince wants to know where Mojo is. And I'm thinking, what is going on here? And then he tells me after He leaves the house, and he tells me the whole story about they went to Prince's house. And, of course, trying to get a hold of Mojo, back to him again. Still haven't found him. Still have not found him. No idea where he is. Don't know what he's doing.
0: He has artfully gone underground in a day of social media when everybody knows what everybody looks like. Even uh, at the Concert of Colors three years ago, there was a tribute to him. And Don was, got in touch with him and had him record and open just like it was the mothership, just like right. it was, right? Uh, just like he was on the radio. And it was amazing. And he sounded incredible, of course, but he could very well have shown up for the tribute. Nobody would have know known. Everyone. He could have slipped in the back door. I, I, I don't know.
1: I, I think I would have recognized him because when you first meet him, it's, right. it's not what you expect at all. Right. I mean, I, it would just
0: be, you know, just dr- to just the ability to dream for a second to have him back on the radio would be I,
1: the, the funny thing about it, I think he would find it more, he was, he was the last of the uh, uh, magicians. He was the last of the guys that could make you feel like you were actually listening to something that was coming from outer space. And that was the thing. That's why I, I, I loved the guy. I thought he was, you know, and at one point he, he said to me something like, you know, a lot of people think you're the, uh, you know, the, the, the white mojo. And I look at him and I go, what? And he goes, yeah, that's people said you're like the white mojo. And I go, you mean you're the black Hallard? <laughs> And he's like, what? I, I, I you know, there's, there's, I, I have nothing but respect for that guy. If, uh, at one point, you know, he was, I had his cell phone number at one point. I mean, not cell phone number, a home number for him, you know, before I left. And I have no idea. This is all pre-PDAs as I said. I don't know what the hell happened to it. Yeah. But uh, it was just, it's weird because, you know, as the story goes, when when Mojo first started playing the underground electronic alternative music of craft work and the stuff that was the early precursor, the early 52s, uh, Whammy. That album is named after his Whammy Whoa, that thing you used to say on the air all the time. The to 52s used to hang out there. They never came by Radios Emotion. Motion. They went to Mojo's show. So um, when I ran into... Um, the guys in New Order, this is after they released the album called Technique. And they, mm-hmm. were, they were already in a, you know, Blue Monday was huge in Detroit. Mojo played it. I played it. It was like everywhere on, on every club. You couldn't get away from that song at one point. And that song was played so often that the Belleville Three guys, their whole thing was, you know, New Order meets Kraftwerk meets whatever it is. And what was trippy to me is years later, when I after the Technique album came out, and I ran into the New Order guys, and I go, "So what's the inspiration by this?" And they go, "Well, we, uh, you know, we we started hearing all this, you know, underground uh, techno music, as you know, it was called back in those days uh, from from Detroit." And uh, and by this time, by the way, I'm I'm way into San Diego at this point. I've like I've been there for three or four years, maybe five years at that point. And uh, they're like, it was so influential on us. And I'm thinking. I'm letting him finish the story, and I go, you do realize that those guys listened to to Blue Monday, your track, as if it was the godsend. And that's how they developed the whole scene was Blue Monday meets Kraftwerk meets Detroit, the whole angsty thing about Detroit. And so you've basically taken your influence on somebody else and then regurgitated back again because they came up with something that was better than you could come up with. And they kind of sat there and looked at it for a while like, That's really trippy. And then the other trippy thing was I went to see, ironically enough, U2, Stereo MCs, and um, uh, PJ Harvey at a show in Stockholm. Uh, My old college roommate was running Island Records at at one point. At the show, there's a girl standing in front of me, and she's got a a UR jacket, an underground resistance jacket. And I'm like, how does somebody in Stockholm, Sweden, have this jacket of one of the most influential, underground, cool-ass bands on the planet? She must be from Detroit. So I tap her on the shoulder and go, hey, are you from Detroit? And she turns around and, and she goes, no, I'm from Iceland. And I look at her and I go, I'm sorry, Bjork. I didn't know it was you. And I thought, <laughs> go back to the same thing. The things that Detroit has done unknowingly, unwittingly, that has affected the rest of the world. The fact that here's our girl Bjork standing at a U2 show and the, the jacket she shows. And by the way, it's, it's July. But the sun is, you know, back back in those days. Well, every July, the sun kind of dips below the horizon in Stockholm and then comes back up again. So people are partying all day and all night. The fact that she's wearing to basically, I don't want to say blend in, but be, you know, a musician-type person in a huge crowd of people is to wear a UR jacket. And I thought that is the trippiest thing I've ever seen in my life. In Stockholm, here's my my Detroit roots and and all those things personified from this amazing – Icelandic artist that's influenced probably more people than anybody wearing something from Detroit, from some of the most creative, you know, creationists of all time. Those, those, they, they revolutionize, you know, people don't give them enough credit, but they're, you know, they're beyond, they're beyond uh, the godfathers of all this stuff. So there you go. That's to tie it all up for, for everybody who's listening. It all started here because of the factories. Thank you, Henry Ford. Well, no, don't thank him particularly. Thank you, somebody. You started it all off.
0: Okay, here's what's so amazing. Your internal clock is unbelievable because we're at fifty-eight and a half minutes.
1: <laughs> How many edits do you, have? do you have to do? Just the one. The one B poll. Have I have to do.
0: I have to do almost nothing. I just have to break it into like three different th- three different segments to air it for an hour and then put it on the website. I'll put it on the webby
1: web. I'll put the it on the webby web.
0: web. But I will say
1: that. Um, I, I, before you, before you, I, I have to point out something because it all came back to me. That I didn't realize how monumental it was. But my first serious girlfriend in Detroit, Jody, her dad was a professor here at Wayne State University years ago. And in the old days, I would call. She was living up in Palmer Park. I would call and the phone was always busy. There's a point to the story. Hang with me. <laughs> and I suddenly realized the emergency breakthrough. Oh, I'll do this because I was like, you know, i had to pick her up. we got to go see a band. we got to do this, whatever. So I'm, you know, at that time I'm fully engulfed in, in, in working at, at DET. And um, I couldn't get a hold of Judy because the phone's always off the hook. So finally I try emergency breakthrough. And this, the, I remember the operator come back on. There's nobody on the line, but it just sounds like garbage. And I'm like, what do you mean garbage? She goes, it's just I break in and I can hear just like weirdness. So I finally show up at the house. This is how bizarre the world works. I show up at the house and I knock on the door. She opens the door and I go, who's on the phone? Oh, my dad's talking to the mainframe. And I go, your dad's on the phone talking to a mainframe? What does that mean? She goes, well, come in here. And I walk in. This is in the, in the 70s, probably early. No, it was the early 80s. And I go in and he's got some sort of a computer sitting on his desk and he's got his telephone shoved into this early modem, and he's talking to the mainframe at Wayne State University. On a modem, uh, probably like two baud, he'd like type in one thing and it would come out the other end. And the whole time I'm going, this is stupid. (laughs) Why why couldn't he just go down there? (laughs) There's no future to this. There's no future to this, whatever this is called, internet but you know, oh, that's a
0: great cause story because all it is,
1: is it's, it's, it's just phone lines. So, Jody, Jody Marriott's dad uh, was my introduction, uh, and like I should have paid more attention to the internet. Yeah, oh to my goodness, what is now known as the internet. And back then, who God knows who what he was talking to.
0: Well, it seems to have worked out, isn't it? Mike Halloran, it has been a joy, and I guess every time you come to Detroit, we have to do another installment
1: of conversations with Mike Halloran. <laughs> Well, we'll have to do, try something, or you, you just have to come out and I can explain. The, I can then I can go into the whole thing about supporting local, which is to me the, the you know the reason I'm in town. Obviously, the the whole local band thing. Right. But when I got to San Diego, I just took whatever the ethos was about Detroit and turned it to San Diego, and that's where Jewel, Blink One Eighty Two, uh, Moraz and all these guys who are now huge pop stars all started on the underground alternative station that I worked at and called Ninety One X back in those days because we were trying to nurture the. You know, nobody thinks of Jewel as alternative, but that's where she got her start was, uh, Absolutely. was right next to Tool. Jewel and Tool on the same station. Who, who only, only Mike Halloran <laughs> could do that. <laughs> oh, who would have thought?
0: <laughs> who would have thought? it? You are the
1: best. Thank you so no, much. Thank you. Thank it's, you it's, so much. It's, it's been a pleasure, and I will see you next time. Absolutely.
0: Many thanks to Mike Halloran for talking with me. The Essential Conversation podcast series is a production of Detroit's public radio station, WDET, and supported by ELS Studio 3D. If you enjoyed it, I hope you'll listen to other episodes in this series. Production provided by Rowan Nemisto and original music by Brett Lucas. I'm Ann Delisi. Thanks so much for listening.